Hello and welcome to another episode of the Adventurous Investor in Conversation with me, David Stevenson. This is the second part of a two-part podcast with Joachim Clement, who's a strategist at the investment bank Liberum. In this episode, we talk about the vices and virtues of ESG investing. Joachim is quite a big fan of ESG investing, myself less so. But anyway, it's a really interesting discussion. Sit back, enjoy and listen. Jochen, um, ESG, what should we make of it? Now, let, let's get, let, let me get my kind of position out of the way at the beginning. I'm very cynical about ESG, environmental, social and governance factors, um, for two main reasons. Um, one is that I feel that they've ended up being devolved and devalued to quantitative measures and a load of them, a kind of, uh, a, kind of a, 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 a battery of measures, of quantitative measures, which pull together such disparate stuff, yeah, uh, that's it, that's in the ESG bit. It's everything from kind of carbon emissions to governance issues to social issues. Um, that it, it's almost pointless in my book uh, because I just think it's a quantitative exercise in making people feel good. And and I just I, I question some of the measures um, and whether or not you can believe them. Uh, but I just fundamentally uh, number one just think that they're all aggregated into the wrong thing i'm all in favor of impact investing i'm all in favor of ethical investing i absolutely understand why uh, for instance a catholic investor would not want to invest ethically in certain things get that time um my second major ground is that it, it betrays a particular set of beliefs yeah and those beliefs are not neutral um so before we came on we were both talking about nuclear power for instance you know nuclear power didn't end up in many ESG measures because lots of people hate nuclear power. Yeah, it's changing now. Yeah, but it didn't. Arms arms manufacturers, for a long time, arms manufacturers weren't included because they were evil peddlers of death. And then we suddenly discovered that actually, funny enough, they're also the defenders of Western democracy. Um, and then from a left-wing point of view as well, uh, the S in ESG, uh, I've long been a, a fan, much to the horror of many of my friends, of proper worker representation on boards, better, better trade union rights. And that mysteriously doesn't tend to appear in many S measures in ESG. I wonder why. Um, so I, I, my worry is, is that ESG is a collection of measures, but put, basically portrays and betrays a kind of groupthink, which is liberal, metropolitan, middle-class, professional thinking. And the, the large numbers of people, both on the right and the left, who sort of don't agree with it, yeah, or, or, or take potshots of it. So, A, I'm not entirely sure about whether or not it works in aggregate. And B, I'm not entirely sure about the choice of measures. What do you think? So, uh, to contrast, I am a believer in ESG, um, but I agree with many of the points that you have because I am quite cynical about how ESG is practiced at the moment. Uh, so, to give you an idea, um, ES and G are three completely different dimensions. And within each of these three letters, we typically are asked, especially as professional investors, are asked to look at dozens of different metrics that have nothing to do. Uh, plus, over the last five years or so, ESG has become massive hype. Uh, so all of a sudden we have to do ESG uh, for every stock in, in every way and fashion and possible, et cetera, et cetera. What I consider cor 
well, correct is the wrong word. It's too strong a word uh, is because it's value uh, value. It, it values things. But what I consider an appropriate way of measure of ESG investing is to use individual E, S, and G criteria as a means of risk management. And basically to avoid certain practices or risks that could literally blow up in your face and tank your stock and your company. Uh, classic, the classic two examples are 2011, BP hovers along nicely. All of a sudden, you spill a couple of billion barrels of oil into the Gulf of Mexico and your share price never recovers, okay? Uh, other example, Boohoo, uh, the fast fashion retailer, really profitable company until somebody realizes that you're running sweatshops in Leicester and your share price never recovers and your your kind of entire margin and all the attraction of your business has been built on unsustainable business practices. Okay. So, but, but then... then well, but then, actually, then, just on those, mm-hmm. would an ESG system have spotted them? I suppose it would have spotted the BP one because... Depends. Having oil tankers moving around, or you know, is a bit of an obvious risk. But it, I suppose it depends on how people have implemented, have implemented ESG. ESG. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Uh, so uh, so the, irony the irony of it all is that Boohoo was, was the biggest holding, holding in an ESG, ESG fund, fund that, was that was up for sale. sale. Uh, uh, that were, uh, was for sale in for retail, retail investors, investors calling itself sustainable labor practices fund. No, it wasn't. Was it? It was. And I'm not going to mention it. me. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> oh dear, that so, was a bit of a faux pas, yeah. Just, just a little, little bit. bit. Um, um, in, in essence, essence the, problem the problem starts if you practice ESG investing as an exercise in measuring something and then comparing the performance of different companies along a certain report, self-reported measure by the company. Okay, that's like basically saying we don't do due diligence on the uh, revenues that you generate and the, the cash flows that you that you stay out. Well, actually, in traditional finance and traditional investing, we've got auditors to do that. And, you know, there are lots of auditor fails. Enron comes to mind, Wirecard comes to mind, where people have literally made up stuff and the auditors haven't noticed. Um, but at least we have independently audited numbers that we can kind of rely on. Um, in ESG, we don't really have such an independent audit at this point in time. And that actually, by the way, becomes a major problem in the bond space at the moment because one of the fastest growing areas of ESG investing is so-called green bonds and sustainability-linked bonds. Essentially, green bonds, there is a, there's a green bond uh, rule or, or guidance in place. Uh, that basically says if you issue a green bond, you have to ring fence the money that you raise and use that only for specific green projects that uh, enhance uh, your environmental performance. Now, I wanted to ask that because actually it's very interesting you, 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 you give that as an example because I, I've looked at sustainable bonds, for instance, mm-hmm. yeah, and I, and I can see arguments both sides here. I absolutely can see arguments both sides where fund managers have said, well, we're going to lend to a natural gas company, yeah, and they're going to cut down their methane flares. By the way, which is is a very, very good idea. I'm really not knocking it. But I half of me also thinks that if you're an, a, a very ethically minded ESG investor, you might not you might be a little disturbed to be investing in a natural gas company. Yeah. 
because you might just think, well, hang on, I just don't want any part of the hydrocarbon economy. So this comes this this absolute debate, which I'm sure you're going to come on to between exclusion ideas and and working with and inclusion ideas. How do you how does one manage that sustainability issue, which is I'm going to lend money and it's definitely going to have an impact. Yeah. Yeah. But it's still a company that maybe should be excluded. Intellectually, that's quite a difficult balancing act. It is a difficult difficult balancing balancing act, act, uh, uh, and there are kind of two basic approaches on how to think about ESG investing. One is I only support the companies that are best in in a specific area, and that might lead to me not investing in fossil fuel companies, etc. I have limited evidence that that is actually doing anything good. Uh, It literally just kind of makes you sell your fossil fuel, your natural gas company stocks or bonds to somebody else who cares less than you about the environmental impact of their practices. So that's why I am strictly opposed to any kind of exclusion. Uh, It simply doesn't work. There's no hard evidence that shows that excluding fossil fuel companies from your portfolio does any benefit to your portfolio, to it doesn't change the practices of the businesses. It doesn't reduce the environmental impact of those businesses. It literally, it literally does, does nothing. nothing. Uh, but we can just just to caveat there, I, I absolutely could understand why, for instance, going back to my point about Catholic investors who might not want to invest in alcohol or drugs. Absolutely, I think we probably both agree. That's your personal ethical, choice. That's your personal absolutely. choice. No problem at all about exclusion where it's absolutely. fundamentally founded on an ethical choice. That's absolutely your choice. But your point is, if you're doing it based on either performance or even risk, it just doesn't work. Or if, or you're, doing if you're doing it, doing it in, order in order to influence, to influence companies, companies, let me tell let me you, tell you're, you're not. not. <laughs> you're, not in, you're not achieving what you intend to do if you want to change company behavior with that. So I am 100% in favor. If you want to change a business uh, and its practices, engage with them. And that means you have to invest with them. You have to give them your money and then be literally on their toes all the time and basically saying, look, guys, I will invest, but you have to do this and this and this. Now, for a small investor like you and me with our money, I mean, the CEO of Glencore won't won't care about what we think. But that is essentially where the big pension funds come into play uh, and where they kind of team up in order to kind of engage with management, management of these companies. Of these companies. Okay, so let's say I'll I'll come to a more central criticism of the kind of active participation model in a second. But um, but but the, the, you've already mentioned the problem with measures, though. So um, so for argument's sake, I decide to engage with said natural gas company, yeah, um, and they're going to stop them, for instance, their methane flaring again. Fantastic idea. Hundred percent agree with it. I sort of in the, in a sense that I have to rely upon them to report it. Don't I? And, and therein hangs the problem, yeah, which is I can imagine for every one or two companies that are thoroughly honest, yeah, and will go out of their way to provide transparency, there'll be one or two other companies that fiddle the numbers. Because let's be honest, they fiddle the numbers in, in even in an auditing setting, setting <laughs> where they call, you know, traditional numbers. So, and, 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 and where you're trying to achieve some impact, that matters, Actually, that matters a lot. Yeah, that matters, that matters a, lot. a lot. 
And, and this goes, goes into, into what's what commonly, commonly known as greenwashing, greenwashing. Yeah. Um, and, and, and essentially a company presenting itself as greener or more sustainable in whatever way or shape than it really is. And this is where I get worried about things like green bonds that I mentioned, because what we've seen over the last two years, and I'm going to write a, a post on it on my blog, uh, which is available for free, blah, blah, blah. blah. And it's fantastic. <laughs> and by the way, it's fantastic. I recommend all the readers go to it. So, so what we've what seen we've over seen the last, over the two, last years two years is when you when people when companies issue a green bond, well, the green bond principles say that the funds that you get from that should be ring fenced and dedicated to a specific environmentally beneficial activity. But the lawyers have come in and basically wrote into the prospectuses of these bond issuance that if the company doesn't do that, it cannot be considered a default and there's no recourse of the investor. So basically the lawyers have then provided cooker uh, uh, boilerplate sentences that basically say, if we don't do what we say on the tin, you can't hold us responsible. <laughs> that should be a bit of a warning sign. Exactly. exactly. And, 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 so and so the end result, result is, is that we now have now green bonds, bonds that, are that are just labeled, labeled green bonds, bonds but would never really, really would never have an in, uh, withstand an external audit. And this is where I emphasize that there are more and more areas where companies can subject themselves to external third-party controls. Uh, the most important one is greenhouse gas emissions, which goes back to your methane uh, flare, uh, methane flare uh, analogy. Usually, those greenhouse gas emissions are certified by a third-party provider, like Bureau Veritas or uh, TÜV, or there are many, many companies who literally look at that. Now, obviously, just like an auditor does when it looks at the books of Company X, they rely on the numbers that Company X shows them. <laughs> and if those numbers aren't true, well, what it's hard to, to, to kind of question numbers because you can't really go and... But, but that's the paradox of all investing. That's the, that's the, that's the problem with all investing. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. So, so I, I, I'm just going to circle back. So let, let's use my example of a methane flaring natural gas company. I suppose one of the worries then comes that um, go back to the marketing hype point, which you mentioned. I didn't even get to marketing hype, Jürgen, so I'm delighted that you got to marketing hype. Um, that I, I, I'm invested in an ESG fund, and I discover that I'm actually one of the big one of the big holdings is a natural gas company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or uh, you know, I, I always slightly have a smile on my face, and I go, you know, you know, Paris aligned because there's all these different terminologies, isn't there? And maybe we can go into that, just talk about what they all are. But there's all sort of Paris aligned this and blah, blah, blah. And then you you look at them and you actually look at the constituents of, say, a Paris aligned version of a stocks 50 index. I'm just thinking something up top of my head. And it will not look terribly different than the stocks 50 version, except there'll be different weightings. Yeah. And, yes. and it, they'll be subtle, but there'll be, there'll be weighting differences. But there's still, you know, massive French oil companies. <laughs> massive Italian oil companies, and 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 you know your end investor sort of goes, well, hang on, um, isn't that the, isn't same, that the same just, just with just a different, different label? label? Yeah, basically, yeah. And I wanted to achieve some impact, actually. Yes, yes. Now that that I and so I've been the marketing hype has effectively sold me a shinier version of the same thing, mm-hmm. whereas actually I wanted something slightly different. Yeah, yeah. So this goes into many, many different dimensions. One of them is 
that a lot of those sustainability funds rely on an aggregate of all those dimensions of E, S, and G. And then within the environmental, there's like dozens of different metrics uh, on, on environmental impact, et cetera, et cetera. And then they mesh it all up together. And then they come up with an ESG rating, let's call it that, because that's what it's called. Um, and these ESG ratings are utterly, utterly useless. I mean, let's let's be honest about them. They are useless to the extent that fund managers who actually are serious about ESG investing are giving up on them altogether. Um, because you, you try to mix a lot of different things together into one pot and they have nothing to do with each other. And a lot of those dimensions might not even have any evidence behind them as a topic that we probably will get to as well, because you mentioned that at the beginning about your cynicism. Uh, there are a lot of ESG metrics, individual metrics, where there is no, at least as far as I am aware of, no empirical evidence that they actually improve business performance or have any impact on the, on the company whatsoever. And part of my mission when it comes to ESG is to weed out the, the, these kinds of... So, so give me an example then. What, what, what's a to couple give of you an example, one metric, one metric that, we that we know absolutely, absolutely works, works and is increasingly, increasingly uh, priced in, in uh, the uh, market, market is CO2, CO2 emissions. emissions. So Greenhouse yeah. gas emissions, and they go to scope one, scope two, and scope, scope one, three. scope two, scope three. Scope three uh, uh, they, basically they basically measure more and more. So scope one and two is basically what happens, what they say, from factory door to factory door. So scope one are the emissions that you produce yourself by running a, a, a I don't know, a steel uh, oven. Uh, uh, furnace steel furnace uh scope two is the electricity you use and and the energy you use but that is produced somewhere else and creates energy uh, greenhouse gas emissions somewhere else and then scope three is everything that you kind of greenhouse gas emissions you produce indirectly by buying stuff from suppliers and selling your goods on to somebody else who then uses it, to, yeah. for example, to drive. So that's the whole life cycle. Of it's the whole, the whole life, life cycle. cycle. And that's where it gets really, really, really difficult to measure. How do you measure that? I mean, how do you that measure is, the whole That is exactly, exactly. Scope free is really, really, really hard. Hmm. Uh, and we can only make reasonable assumptions, but it's in most instances, especially when it comes to kind of universal things like, you know, car how much miles is a car driven if you sell millions of cars uh where is it driven and what circumstances etc blah 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 it's it's really tough but scope one and scope two is reasonably easy i mean it's not easy easy but it is doable um and we know that if a, a company reduces its greenhouse gas emissions it gets rewarded with uh, basically investors and customers, etc., saying, I prefer that company because it has less of an impact on climate change, etc. And that is also the gives rise to one area of ESG investing that I like, which is ESG momentum. So you don't invest in the best companies, but you might invest in your natural gas or oil company if you uh, see that it is systematically improving year after year after year in its greenhouse gas emissions because that is where you really get the the benefits for the company you know you get from really really bad to better and better and somebody once said you make the most money in equity markets if things go from really really bad to just bad uh, and the same thing happens with greenhouse gas emissions <clears throat> What are the so, measures? What are the measures that really don't you shouldn't use? Yeah, exactly. 
uh, one bugbear of mine that I've actually asked my readers of my blog to give me any evidence that biodiversity matters. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Oh, dear. Yeah. And, well, yeah, but of course it does matter. In the global sense of the word, biodiversity it, it, matters. It matters. It matters, it matters globally, globally. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, 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 but it doesn't, it doesn't matter, matter for 99.9 percent of the businesses. The only businesses where you can show that it matters is, for example, chocolate manufacturers, because cocoa is a very fickle plant, and then it is very, very exposed. If you have biodiversity loss, the, the harvest very quickly starts to fail. But other than that, so other than a Baricalbo, Hotel Chocolat, Nestle, you really find no evidence that biodiversity matters for almost all businesses. Yet it is the it is such a trendy topic that by now we not only have a, a COP26 for climate change, we have a different COP for biodiversity. And you're like, oh my God, just give me a break. <laughs> and I, I have to say, I'm nodding away. You can't see the video of this, but uh, I, I always know that something has become ever so slightly kind of, how can we put it, questionable um, when I see large French, particularly investment banks, put out enormous weighty things, which are all about, you know, for instance, biodiversity. And I just go, well, come on. I mean, you know, we all, we all know. <laughs> if if that that's kind of opens up all sorts of questions, I suppose. But just challenging the biodiversity bit, yeah. I suppose you could make an argument that says, I'm aware of the limitations that I make this argument, that um, the food companies, um, the um, I don't know, companies, restaurant companies, um, you know, that a, a keener interest, yeah, in the food chain, yeah. And the agricultural chain, which is in reality most of what biodiversity is about, it's biodiversity is impacted by the agricultural and the food chain. That's not a bad thing to. And you did mention chocolate, I agree, but surely isn't it bigger than just chocolate? It, it does impact lots of stuff where there's an ex, either an agricultural extractive industry. Surely there must be some there must be some value and impact there. Yes, yes and no. Uh, so the, a lot of the value comes from producing healthier foods and serving healthier foods when you go to a restaurant. Okay, that, but that's a public health concern, uh, and and that's not necessarily an investment concern, which is two different things. Um, and then the other thing where it matters is uh, when the way food is produced has an impact, again, going on greenhouse gas emissions and, and climate change. So producing meat is highly, highly, uh, uh, it, it issues a lot of greenhouse gases because cows burp. I mean, that's just a fact of life and you can't change that. Uh, and similarly, producing leather because cows burp, again, uh, is very destructive to the environment and to the climate both. And, and, and by the way, just a, a useless idea, there's a fascinating interview recently done with, with the lady who founded CRISPR, and they've basically worked out, which is this new kind of um, genetic array technology, that it, gut health with cows is a huge issue, which is if you can basically subtle, subtly alter the gut health of cows, yeah, via various kind of ways that CRISPR technology embraces, you could make a huge difference to methane emissions. Um, going back to a discussion we were having before we even started this about the kind of climate fatalism that seems to be quite prevalent, it's amazing actually how innovation and technology can make a big difference. Okay, so biodiversity. Um, uh, what about uh, what about my favourite bugbear, which is the S bit? Um, 
Uh, uh, my favourite bugbear, which I've already sort of intimated, is that I get particularly annoyed when people talk about the social impact and they and they chunder on about community. Um, and then I look at, for instance, uh, I you know, and again, I go back to my second point. This is about value judgments, uh, CEO ratios or CEO medium wage ratios. Uh, I understand why some people disagree with them and think they don't work. I, I equally understand why some people think they do work. Trade union recognition, um, workplace representation on board. Do, do do those kind of labour issues, which are, are, call me old fashioned, but I would assume that if you've got a happy workforce, that makes you a more sustainable business. Call me old fashioned. Um, uh, did any of them crop up on the ESG measures? So, so we have more and more evidence that the S bit is actually more important than the E bit to most companies, uh, and it has a bigger impact on the performance of a company and the corporate sustainability and the corporate sustainability. sustainability. Mm. Uh, The problem problem for the longest time was that people didn't know how to put it into numbers. Uh, You know, it's, it's really hard. You know, greenhouse gas emissions, you kind of get your, can you get your hand around it, et cetera, and, and measure it. And, you know, we, we investors, we like to measure everything. If it doesn't fit into my Excel spreadsheet, it doesn't exist. Um, and, and when it comes to these kind of lots of these S things, uh, they were really hard to measure. So by now things are changing. We are better able to kind of get a handle on how these things work. And we now also have advanced technologies like natural language processing and things like that, that allow us to analyze in a quantitative way, qualitative data. So basically what companies say and do and how they report their stuff. Long story short, um, Things like the disparity between executive compensation and employee compensation. I have no evidence that this has any impact on the sustainability of the company. Yeah, no, true. Oh, I'm sure that's uh, it's, and it's a value judgment. You either it's, care it's about it. It's an absolutely value, yeah, value judgment. judgment. And, yeah. and yeah. It, it, really, it really, there is little evidence. Little evidence. So I, I disregard it altogether. What I do like to look at in terms of S are several things. Number one, employee health and safety absolutely essential Um, because there's also a direct link. You know, if you have a couple of people who suddenly get sick, uh, well, guess what? They are not showing up for work. You have to replace them, your productivity, etc. You get all these problems. Number two is a happy and satisfied and motivated workforce. Uh, So you want to have, you want to invest in a company where people love to work. Now, how do you measure that? Here's a very simple metric that I have loved to use for for years when I was managing money and and still recommend everybody. It's voluntary turnover of employees. So basically asking a company, and and few companies will will give out that data voluntarily, but uh, they all have it and more and more are actually showing it because basically what you're showing is if you suddenly as a company have an increase in people leaving the company that might have tons of different reasons but essentially it is a reflection on the morale of your staff okay so that works like a charm the third one that tends to work is diversity and this is where i 
caution a little bit because the the way we measure diversity is about gender diversity and ethnic diversity. How many women do you have in your company versus men? How many minority ethnic groups, etc.? The reason why we use those metrics is because we can't measure the actual underlying driver of diversity, which is diversity of experiences and diversity of thought. So this in is other cognitive, words, cognitive and experiential cognitive diversity. diversity and yeah. experiential and diversity. diversity. Ways of solving a problem in a business. The more diverse backgrounds you have from different people, the more, the less they. Uh, are sub subject to groupthink and the better the decisions they make on every level of the business. But that is something that we still have to figure out how to actually measure that. So we, we kind of go with a rudimentary thing and say, ah, well, women on average have a different experience base than men and ethnic minorities have a different experience base than, than whites, which is true to some extent. And, and that's why we use it as a proxy. <clears throat> um, I just want to finish with a couple of last questions. Just on the, we, we can't not talk about regulations. And I've already sort of muttered about Paris lines. There's all sorts of dreadful acronyms and geographical um, monikers that are being applied to this. What, what should investors watch out for are the most useful? Um, is things like F SFDR and SDR and endless acronyms lurking around. And, so, you, and then... So Listeners, any of them are useful. Can't see me. Can't see me. Close my eyes. Yeah. Yoakim has just currently got his head in his hands in despair. We have unfortunately encountered the acronym soup bit of the discussion. Look, the problem is the following: all of these different acronyms can be used for good or bad, can be used for greenwashing or no greenwashing. So I don't like to kind of give a damn about any of them. <laughs> the only things where I am uh, take, paying attention is if a company has external verification of its goals. So there is the science-based target initiative for climate change and greenhouse gas uh, uh, um, uh, uh, emissions reduction. Uh, and companies need to sign up for that in order to have a, a valid plan how to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions going forward. So that, I would say, is absolutely a, a great thing. We've already mentioned external audits of green bonds and things like that uh, in, in, in that respect. And other than that, forget about them. One thing that I would like to emphasize, however, is that the, when it comes to regulation, the FCA at the moment is proposing labels for sustainable funds. And these labels... Is, this, is this the same as Article 8, 9, and, I don't know, Article 36, yes, yes. I'm sure we'll get to at some point, but anyway. Yes, so, yes, so, so, Article, so Article 6, 8, 8 and 9 is the nine EU, is the almost, equivalent, almost equivalent, but it is it is a much looser definition. The, U, the, the UK definitions would be proper labels that you can only use if you meet several strict criteria. Uh, and there are basically three uh, labels that they propose. One is impact investing, in which case you have to show that beyond your investment impact, there is a real-life economic impact of the investments you make. So you kind of finance hospitals or build infrastructure, etc. Um, then there's the second one, which is an engagement label, where you have to show as a, as a fund or as a product provider how you engage with the company in improving certain ESG metrics or certain ES environmental criteria, which is where we come back to uh, the engagement thing that I like a lot. And then there is the, the 
simple sustainability label where you have to show along which metrics you use to show that you actually made progress with your portfolio, that, you, that the companies in your portfolio made progress. Whether that is a metric like greenhouse gas emissions reductions or whether that is increasing diversity or uh, any kind of metric, you have to show what is your target with your investments and how that improves over time. I love, I love these labels. These labels. If yeah, these labels become useful. true, yeah. they would it actually get rid of a lot of the products that are greenwashing at the moment. Among them, so many ESG indices that are just basically going along these ESG credit, uh, ESG ratings that I've already kind of uh, criticized. Yeah, trashed is probably the correct word. Um, <clears throat> Now we are in the process where industry is giving feedback. In other words, they're lobbying against them. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, that won't survive. That won't survive an encounter with reality. So, 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 so the, question the question is, is what will what be, the, be end the end product be like? Be like but, but at but the at moment, the... it looks like the FCA is actually doing a good job on that front and is holding firm. But we'll, we'll find out when these labels will become official towards the summer or autumn of this year. That'll be a turn up for the books. The FCA doing a really good job. Anyway, I'm being a bit cynical there. Um, so one last question here. Um, you, you're an ordinary investor, yeah, and you really want to achieve an impact. Okay, so you, you let, let, for argument's sake, let's say you want to achieve an impact, achieve an impact on the E bit, the, the environmental bit. And, and, very, and you absolutely understand why you want to do that. And then you look at, the ESG things, and you go, well, I'm not too sure about it. I've listened to David and listened to Jochen, and I'm a bit suspicious. So I want to look at impact. The, the problem with impact, surely, is, is that, the, and I spend a lot of time, like you have, looking at impact investing. It's quite it's difficult to access in the public markets, actually. Um, it, it, they do exist, but it's quite tricky. And a lot of the really interesting impact projects are quite often done privately uh, and, and quite often run by private equity, which always puts a smile on my face. Um, private equity impact sustainability. Anyway, um, so what can, what can, in broad terms, if you want to achieve an environmental impact, what, what broad kind of things can you invest in in the public markets? Is there anything there? There, there, there must surely be some limited areas and areas where you can achieve a real impact. I'm guessing, for instance, renewables funds. Yes, so there are there are a, a, a small number of individual stocks or individual funds where you can actually get an impact. Uh, you already mentioned probably the biggest sector in the UK are closed end funds, investment trusts that invest in renewables uh, or in energy storage uh, and battery storage and things like that. So they run solar farms, they run wind farms, they have battery storage for, for renewable electricity, et cetera, et cetera. So these are definitely the, the cleanest and, and I'd say the best impact investments. And then if you go into individual stocks, you might find some, some specific stocks that actually are in a business that helps other businesses improve their environmental impact. So I'm thinking about, without expressing an opinion whether to buy or sell that stock, companies like Ricardo, which is a consulting company that does by now two-thirds of its revenues on environmental consulting, helping other businesses get to, on track with their environmental footprint and, and becoming environmentally more sustainable. Um, <clears throat> 
Other companies might be SMS, smart metering systems, which rolls out smart meters to save electricity, etc. So these kinds of individual companies are possible. But other than that, you're very, very limited. It's, you have to be quite rifle shot, don't you? You really do have to be very focused on individual sectors. And and what about, and we'll finish then, um, what about something like, a, I don't know, a carbon ETF or a carbon ETP? where um, you're actually looking at the pricing of carbon, because we're, we're sticking on the E bit, the environmental bit. And presumably, you know, if you invest in uh, a, a tracker that invests in carbon, you know, you're you're wagering that the price of carbon will go up, yeah? Because you're probably not putting your money in it because you think the price of carbon is going to go down, yeah? Um, because you probably want to encourage um, an increased cost of carbon emissions, does that sort of qualify? Do those kind of things qualify as, as kind of impact or, or is it murkier there? It's a, it's a tough call whether that qualifies as impact. And the, the reason is very simple. I completely agree that the price of carbon is very likely to go up. In fact, if it doesn't go up, we're never going to change our economy to a more sustainable model. Um, the problem that I have with it is that the supply of these carbon emission certificates is a political process. So the EU and the UK government provide these at the beginning of each year to companies who are major emitters, and they just basically reduce the supply every year by a little bit in order to kind of force the price up. Um, so theoretically, you could say, well, if I invest in these carbon certificates, then basically I own them and the company, some other company doesn't own them. Uh, so theoretically, that means they can't issue, uh, emit that much greenhouse gas. Is that really working? I have serious doubts whether that is really working. So at this point in time, if we had enough investors to buy 10% of all the carbon <laughs> carbon uh, certificates each year. It would definitely make an impact. But at the moment, it is such a niche product that I would say it's literally just trading uh, like you would trade any other commodity. Yeah, I know. It's, it's very – absolutely, most people don't even know it exists. Joachim, as always, I, we've ended up in a position where I think we largely agree with each other, which um, – I find a shock. Well, I wasn't expecting that. Um, <laughs> look, look, one thing that you mentioned is like uh, you focus on the negatives of ESG investing, becoming really fatalistic about how desperately bad it is in practice. And I focus on the opportunity as like there are really good practices in there. And that's, I think, in general, some things like when, we, whenever we're faced with these tragedies and these kind of risks, guys, wherever there is risk, there's an opportunity to kind of get better at it and improve the situation. And that's also an investment opportunity. Well, I, I, if nothing else, I think my single greatest challenge to anybody on the professional side listening to this is let's get some proper impact funds and more businesses that are on the public markets that are having a real impact, measurable, verified, externally verified. And then that's, that, that breeds, there's enough of them. That's, there's dozens, hundreds of them. That brings a fund. You might have an index. And that that that's the way in which you you know bit by bit you get impact investing or sustainability on the mainstream. So we just have to get those numbers of public companies up, and then we can achieve the change. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, as always, thank you for so much of your time. Thank you. Thank you for having, thank me. You for having me.